We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome back, everyone. Steve with Sessa Fidelia. I'm coming to you once again with Charles Cologne from the far corners of the East and the Eastern Front in Austria during this lockdown period. Charles, welcome it, back. Indeed, indeed. But it's locked down no more. <laughs> locked down no more. Free at last. Free at last. Free at last. <laughs> free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. And breaking news, everybody. This is the third day of the historic creation of the Empire of Chaz. <laughs> That's right. The Confederate Headquarters Autonomous Zone. In whose honor I am wearing a lapel pin. A battle flag lapel pin for Chaz. Because, ladies and gentlemen, this this shows you how sneaky the Confederates, the Neo-Confederates, really are. While everyone's busy ripping down statues and, and tearing up battle flags down in the South, secession has reared its head again in Seattle. And I call on all you true sons of the South, all of you dear old, dear young men in gray, to go to Chaz, the Confederate headquarters autonomous zone, and stand up for the flower of Southern womanhood. I'm saying, bring your guns, bring your Bibles, bring your Confederate money, bring your battle flags. Because you got to reinforce what's going on in Chaz. I bet everyone's scratching their head going, I never thought about that. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it could be true. <laughs> Why? You definitely got to Oh, I see. Everybody rate. else can say whatever they want. Everybody else can say what they want, but I've got to watch what I'm saying. Well, no, it doesn't work that way, Monkey. You see, every other news outlet is spewing gibberish of all kinds. And I don't get to? I don't think so. I'm in on the moron train. Yeah. Uh-huh. We went down today and said, dead government, we're going to swing on swings. Everyone's rioting. We're going to go swing on that swing. You betcha. Camacho in 2020. That's what I'm saying. Hacho Camacho, I'm going to do Pepsi-Cola Camacho for president. That's right. Idiocracy, if anybody has no idea what we're talking about. Brought to you by Brando. <laughs> the thirst mutilator. <laughs> Which is what they're asking for up in Chaz, because they can't get plants to grow. No, they need electrolytes. That's what plants crave. They might get a salad in three months if, they're, if they stay at it. No, I think all they're going to be able to grow is pot. <laughs> That's it's about all, no, it's the only cash crop that they could possibly have up there. Biggest import-export. Well, in Seattle, I mean, what, what do you think? They don't grow coffee beans there. They may give, give it to Starbucks, but they don't grow coffee beans in Seattle. Did they annex, so, no, no, no. Did they annex a Starbucks in there? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. They do have shops in the. Uh, they do have shops in the Confederate headquarters autonomous zone. Uh, I think, I don't know, Popeyes maybe. Uh, General Raz, <laughs> make sure you got that in there. Or... Yeah, and Hardee's. 
you know, it, it, yeah, it, it's, it, yeah, it, it, it's, it's everything Southern fried, you know. <laughs> the, <laughs> I, I'll tell you, I'm ready to go up. I got my sister suit. I'm, I'm ready to show up there, you know. <laughs> Yes, Colonel Court we've been having a good time at Chaz's expense the last uh, day, two days, well, ever since existence. <laughs> oh, come on. Chaz is having a good time at our expense. Why Chaz can't we have one at theirs? That's right. Chaz's <laughs> lives matter. Past lives matter for all of our reincarnation fans. <laughs> Past lives matter. You know, what if you were Cardinal Richelieu or Amelia Earhart in the last in a past life? That matters. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. You know, we've got to break down these barriers, ladies and gentlemen, this, these coherence, uh, the Western coherent thought. We've got to break those things down. Whatever drivel pops into your head, ladies and gentlemen, that's where it's at. They got barriers. They built a wall, albeit plastic. They did. And they say, now leaving the United States. Yeah. You know, I mean, years ago when I was in junior high, this black guy held up a bank or something. And he took, you know, he took hostages. He was going to pop them off if his demands weren't met. War is demands, you ask. He gave all white people 24 hours to leave the planet. <laughs> and I heard that. And I said, I'm, I'm, with, I'm with him. I'm ready to go. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I don't care if it's Mars, Saturn, or the, or the Romulan Space Empire, you know. You gave me my UFO and I'm off on a comet. Bye-bye. Do, do you remember, uh, did you ever watch Family Guy? Uh, a few times. Remember when Peter secedes uh, uh, and creates Pretoria? <laughs> All by himself. Has his own flag, his face is on the flag. And he, once his, his wife comes out there and says, we're all, it's a, it's a very small place. It's all white. And we're working on our space program. Our son's out back doing it now. And it's, he's reaching for the moon. Going, Almost there. <laughs> Try our best. We, you know, we do have micro nations uh, in the world. Look up micro nations. Mm -hmm. There are a ton of them. In fact, uh, there was they had a convention of them like three or four years ago that uh, made the TV news in LA, and you saw guys dressed, you know, the Field Marshal uh, Gomer of the uh, People's Nation of Hamburia. It's like, okay, very good. I, I mean, I don't like the phrase "delusions of grandeur" because it's it's pejorative, really. Uh -huh. It's interesting though, and there's more. I remember when I was very young, uh, there was a fellow whose name escapes me, but he got together with some uh, 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 investors, and they got a hold of a reef south of uh, Fiji. And they, it was the Minerva Reef, and they used concrete, and they built kind of a platform on it, and they declared the Republic of Minerva. And they sold coins and this kind of thing. Uh, but unfortunately, the kingdom of Tonga didn't really appreciate it, so they occupied the Minerva Reef, and that was the end of the Republic of Minerva. Uh, the same guy who was, was really keen on starting a nation someplace, when the Bahamas became independent, there's a, an island called Abaco. Mm -hmm. Now, the island itself is mostly black, but on little islands, often the, the, the keys, the Abaco keys, are all white because they're the descendants of loyalists who fled the, uh, the United States after the revolution. So he had the bright idea of seceding for the Bahamas with these guys. Well, they weren't too impressed with it, really. They, they didn't kind of go along with the gag, so that was the end of that. 
But and he tried a couple of other of other dodges. But we have had in our earlier American history, before the Civil War, the antebellum period, mm-hmm. we have had some very impressive attempts at secession and rebellion. In seventeen eighty seven in Massachusetts, there was the Shays Rebellion, led by Captain Shay. And Captain Shay was a Revolutionary War veteran who had risked his life in the Great Rebellion under the misapprehension that the oligarchy of the colony, led by people like John Hancock and Sam Adams, were fighting the revolution to share power with the lower classes like <laughs> Captain Shay. <laughs> oops. <laughs> it, oops, indeed. It turned out that this was not really what had been on their mind. <laughs> and so, for some reason, Captain Shay was very upset. He was very upset about the taxes that had gone way up in the wake of the revolution. Because you remember there was this whole thing about no taxation without representation. It was in the small print at the bottom. Well, the small print was this does not apply to the people who pay taxes to us. Because the people who brought you the revolution, for the most part, in each colony were the people that dominated the local assembly, Mm -hmm. for whom only a minority of white men could vote. And they levied taxes on everybody. So somebody like Shea comes back and a couple years after the war is bankrupt. And they're still charging him enormous taxes. <laughs> but he can't vote. But he fought in the war. <laughs> and a lot, of his, a lot of his neighbors were in the same boat. And they didn't realize that revolutionary, and I see a lot of our friends, maybe even, maybe even at the Confederate headquarters autonomous zone, they find out that revolutionary rhetoric is not necessarily intended for the foot soldiers of the revolution. It may only be intended for those who run the revolution. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying there's anything disingenuous or dishonest about that, because as a Californian, I am not permitted by state law to judge. But, and even in Austria, you know, I don't want to find myself hustled away to the American Consulate General and you know, <laughs> smacked around. So uh, I got to say that, that poor, poor Captain Shea did not do well with that. Then you had in the 18, uh, 1814, no, I'm sorry, 1798, you had my favorite rebellion under General Washington as president. Now, to mind you, that's a cause I could get behind. <laughs> you know, uh, you, 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 you can't tax our whiskey, uh, President Washington. <laughs> and, of course, the reason, the reason why this was such an important thing was you had all these farmers in Pennsylvania growing grain. Mm-hmm. The problem was there was not sufficient transport to get the grain as grain mm-hmm. to the cities of the east, to Philadelphia, to New York, and so forth. There was just no way to get it there. So they were going to make any money. It had to be put into an easily transportable transportable form that would be readily used in those cities. You guessed it. Whiskey. Rye whiskey. Corn whiskey. Oat whiskey. Wheat whiskey. Whiskey whiskey. So literally oceans of whiskey were being made by the farmers on the frontier and then sent to the big cities. Well, the federal government looked at that, and they said, no, 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 hold on. Now, this looks like, if I've ever seen, uh, let, me, let me explain. This is what we call a taxable resource. 
But the farmers were not appreciative of this because, again, they had fought in the revolution and they thought that one of the things was taxation without representation. And they heard something about well, freedom or something like that. <laughs> and that brings us back to the... Uh, I think that tax uh, the, is still the, on the books, uh, right? Oh, yeah. Whiskey gets taxed. You don't that, believe me? Yeah, Go that hasn't gone store. off. That's still there. No. And, and this led sometime between Shays Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion, someone or other, I forget who, said, we, would never, we have never been so lightly taxed as we were under the king. But at any rate, the Whiskey Rebellion was fought and the Whiskey Rebels lost. Which brings us to the next uh, event, the War of 1812, in which New England shipping was destroyed. Now, New England was not interested in the War of 1812. Uh, the Westerners were, the Southerners were, the New Yorkers were to some degree, but the New Englanders had no interest in it. They didn't want to conquer Canada. They didn't want to conquer Florida. They just wanted to trade. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even the slave trade was gone by that time, so it was very difficult. That was how abolitionism started getting big in New England. When the profit went out of slavery for New England, New England discovered a conscience. Mm -hmm. Very, very inspiring. Mm -hmm. But what? What price conscience? Anyhow, so what should happen but that uh, they gathered in 1814 the delegates of the different New England states to discuss seceding from the Union, the Hartford Convention. Uh -huh. Moving forward and in Jefferson upstate New York, okay with that. what's that? And Jefferson was okay with that. Oh yeah, well why wouldn't he be? Yeah, just uh, unlike that Lincoln guy, he said, "Yeah, if they want to do it, we'll trade with them. They can go." Yeah, but Lincoln had Lincoln did not write the Declaration of Independence. I thought he did. Jefferson did. <laughs> so Jefferson was kind of stuck in his own rhetoric. Yeah, yeah. But uh, moving forward, they decided not to do it, which turned out to be a smart move. But moving forward, uh, eighteen thirty-nine, upstate New York, the vast Rensselaer estate the uh, tenants began refusing to pay their uh, their rents to their feudal lord whose father and grandfather had been uh, prominent in the revolution in that part of the world mm -hmm. so you had what was called the anti-rent wars from 1839 to 1844 and those were not nice and in the end the great Rensselaer estates were broken up mm -hmm. lastly 1842 1843 you had a big fight in Rhode Island, the Door Rebellion, over once again the lack of the ability of most white males to be able to vote for the uh, the uh, state assembly, mm -hmm. and they lost militarily, but they won politically. Mm -hmm. And notice, all of these rebellions were not Southerners; they were all Yankees each and every one of them so what has this got to do with the confederate headquarters autonomous zone uh what what it shows is that secession and rebellion are not purely southern right there is american as the international i mean sorry there's american as apple pie so mind you um I was just picturing the Chaz Olympic team. 
don't. <laughs> don't. I mean, you know, I, I, I've got to say what, what makes you laugh, the Chaz flag is a combination of black power and rainbow power. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a little bit of a problem with this. And I'll explain why. My parents were active in civil rights before Dr. King uh, became a name. Uh, there were reasons why. Uh, basically, my parents were actors, and they objected very strongly to um, the segregation faced by their company mates when they would be in mixed theatrical companies. Mm-hmm. As my father said, uh, you know, when he came to New York after the war, black people could sit in the lobby of the Waldorf Astoria, but they couldn't go to the bar or the restaurants. You see, people forget that. They forget that. But, as it happens, um, my dad saw it, and he was pretty outraged. Now, you got to bear in mind, my dad was a Catholic and a, and a conservative. You know, he was an anti-Roosevelt conservative. He was a Taft Republican. Mm-hmm. But he was very much opposed to legal segregation. He believed that the law should be colorblind. Mm-hmm. Later on, he opposed busing and enforced integration for the same reason that he opposed enforced segregation. Mm-hmm. He felt that the law should be colorblind. He said, if it is, eventually people will simply work things out on their own. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can't, and, and the thing about my dad, and, and I really have to stress this, he grew up in what we would call today a very multicultural and diverse place, New Bedford, Massachusetts, in the 1930s, 20s and 30s. Uh, he was French-Canadian. They had, just to look at the Catholics for a moment, they had French parishes, Italian, German, Polish, Lithuanian, and, of course, the Irish who were inescapable. They had Greek and various Slavic Orthodox. They had the old Yankees. And what all these people had in common was that they really didn't like each other. But interestingly enough, at the same time, oh, and Portuguese, can't forget the Portuguese. Interestingly enough, at the same time, you had three different kinds of blacks. You had the uh, the northern blacks, who were the descendants of the freedmen of the revolutionary era who tended to be sort of uh, nose in the air, as Dad would put it. Uh, you had the Southern blacks who had come up after World War I to work in the, in the mills. And then you had the Azorian and Madeiran and Cape Verdean blacks who were Portuguese-speaking and Catholic in religion. These three groups hated each other, just the way the whites hated each other. And that taught my dad a very important lesson. People hate each other. And the stupider you are, the more you'll hate someone on the basis of his background without ever getting to know him. Mm-hmm. He used to say it's like red ants and black ants or any kind of animal. They dislike anything that's different. Mm-hmm. And just as animals will mate any way they want, eat anything they want, drink anything they please, the human being. Uh, has to try to overcome those things. The less like the animal he becomes, the more human he becomes. Now, 
This is particularly true, my father felt, for Catholics, because he said, and again, he had the example of the internal hatreds, and they were terrible. I mean, the Irish and the French Canadians literally could not stand each other. Uh, there's a very famous story he told of how uh, he was, after my grandfather died, uh, they had to give up the car, and they lived in one of the old whaling mansions down on Water Street. So to get to the French church down to North End, they had to take the streetcar when they lost the, the automobile. So every Sunday they'd get dressed and they'd go on the streetcar. One Sunday they missed it. So they had to go to the Irish church nearby, which they had never set foot in. Now, you've got to understand, Meme was not wearing the lace hat. You know, they weren't wearing wooden shoes or anything like that. Dad didn't have the took on his head, you know, the sash. No, 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 nothing like that. But nevertheless, they sat in the front row the way they did at Sakrakaya. But somehow, the priest knew who they were. And he looked at them, and in the midst of his sermon, he looks at them and he points and he says, Why don't your people go back where you belong? And we just sat there. But afterwards, on the way out the door, my grandmother, who spoke English quite as well as she spoke French, she had a radio show. She looked at him and she says, I'm so terribly sorry, Father. I hadn't realized that this was an Episcopal church. <laughs> so Dad said that the priest got so bad he couldn't talk. He turned red as a beet. <laughs> you know, let's see. <laughs> Each of those knives has to be carefully prepared for the particular target. It's got to be the thing that will upset him alone. Well, at any rate, I mention all this because this was a big part of growing up. And, you know, we, we had black people that my parents had known in for dinner. And I mean, my, my parents knew Black Panthers, for heaven's sake. Uh, and I mention this because I think of the people they knew, and I, I can only imagine what they would think of jazz, of the rainbow and the black. I mean, whatever else you call, and, and yeah, I know there were people like Bayard Rustin and all that in the movement. I know that. But by and large, whatever else you call them, they were not effeminate. <laughs> and, you know, there's there's a thing making the, uh, making the rounds today that shows a, uh, a black Trump supporter interviewing a tranny mm -hmm. who's going on and on and on about, you know, how terrible uh, cisgendered privilege is and it's awful being obese, all the while the person is stuffing their mouth with donuts. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I pray to God it's a put-on. And grotesquely made up. Multicolored hair. I pray to God it's a put-on. I, I, I wish Be everything the last two months was a put-on. Well, so do I. You know, it, it. my joke was always I had to get out of comedy because my best lines kept turning into headlines. <laughs> and, you know, that was years ago. Now, I, I gee, Willikers. But, uh, you know, you do have to look at the, at the funny side of it. But also, it's got to be borne in mind is that right now there's a great deal of hatred in the air. And as Catholics, we've got to try to avoid it. Uh, basically... They were being pushed to hate the minorities. We were being pushed to hate the Democrats. 
which is funny if you think about the history of the Democrats, <laughs> were being pushed to hate the hierarchy, the church hierarchy. I mean, I don't want to mention Archbishop Gregory's name, but you look at some of the things these guys are saying and doing and demanding out of their flocks, they don't want to smack them. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, really, you're looking spam. How about that? Want to keep talking? You can't do it. Because even inciting you to hate them, they're unwittingly doing the work of the devil. And if you hate them, you're succumbing to it. It's very hard sometimes. I mean, it's very, very hard. That's why if you can laugh, it's a lot better. Either than getting angry or crying. I mean, I don't know what's going to be left of the country when all this stuff clears. I really have no idea. And I am outraged at the destruction of monuments and memorials. Yeah, the Confederate ones. But the Columbus memorials, Kate Smith, uh, my gosh, Abraham Lincoln. But the, the, the uh, famous abolitionist Matthias Baldwin in Philadelphia. Yeah. I mean, it's just like these morons. Ooh, statue! Ooh, statue bad! Must break! Um, it's, it's the revolt of the morons. And yet, we've got to fight not to hate them. Because, here's the thing. I'm an old guy. About as old as a lot of people, but I'm older than most. And I am old enough to remember the summer of 1967. Now, I know that my fellow boomers like to think of it as the summer of love. If you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your yeah 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 i know that and that was true enough in the bay area san francisco berkeley and so forth (laughs) even to a degree in la we'd have the watts riots two years earlier you know that kind of (laughs) we'd shot our bulls on that one but in the east it was the long hot summer and there were race riots all over the East Coast. And in some places like Newark and Detroit, it was so bad that they wrecked those cities. I mean, they've never recovered. Mm-hmm. They're just dead hulks. So what was the result of the, of the uh, long, hot summer? It was President Nixon in the White House. That's what the result was. I had thought that the uh, Trumpster was going to get reelected um, before. Now I'm absolutely sure of it. Uh, every time a shop gets burned, you just made a Trump supporter out of the shopkeeper and his family mm-hmm. and his employees. Um, and the and just as in the '60s, when Americans get frightened, they vote Republican. They want Daddy, not. Grandpa Biden, especially if they're afraid he's a little dotty. I don't think so, by the way. And I, I really respect his pledge to bring the troops home from Watergate. <laughs> what? I think that's a very bold and courageous step. <laughs> you know, the Paris-Texas peace accords and all that stuff. Mm. Anyway, you know, there's the terrible joke. Uh, Mr. Biden was on the, white, uh, was on the campaign trail. 
you know, in, in, in uh, Pittsburgh. And uh, he sees the White House. He says, well, we're going to go all the way to the White House. That one there. Uh, no, Mr. Biden, it's, it's not that White House. It's another one. No, this is Pennsylvania Avenue, I'm sure. I must have been here. No. I was vice president. Don't tell me I know what the White House is. That house is white. This is Pennsylvania Avenue. We're going in. Well, anyway. the uh, See, we got white picket fence. They get water of that. Uh, Why am I saying one of them lawn jockeys. <laughs> see, I want to have lawn jockeys. That's pretty white. But no, I, I honestly, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's really very, very plain to me that he'll be reelected. But the problem is, the longer all this stuff goes on, the longer the iconoclasm continues, especially in the South, but not exclusively by a long shot, mm -hmm. the more I am afraid something is going to be woken up in this country, which would have been better left to sleep. And that is. A good chunk of the country, that chunk that like does stuff, fights its wars, works in its factories, hunts, fishes, you know, has lives and stuff, and is armed, mm -hmm. will not really be happy with being smacked around. Now, frankly, in the last year of Mr. Obama's reign, I felt what I considered very frightening tremors coming from that direction but the Trumpsters election put all that at ease because they felt what do you know I guess my vote does count for something I'm not a, a complete uh, you know exile in my own home I do matter and if the Trumpsters reelected as I suspect it will be in 2020 same same although nothing that is happening this summer will be forgotten and it will be stored up in that great resentment mill that people have. If we get a Democrat sort of Hillary to the second power or whatever they elect um, in 2024, that's when it's going to get really, really dicey. Unless, of course, the Trumpster loses the election. Because they will be convinced that everything was trumped up, part of the expression, uh, to keep him out of the White House. And either one is not going to be pretty. But I mean, we're, we, are, we are approaching a point, ladies and gentlemen, where the two Americas are not going to be co able to cohabit in the same house. And, you know, I know a lot of people who are um, of the opinion that that's what should happen. They'd like to see uh, Biden or you know, Biden and uh, uh, Kamala Harris or Biden and Pocahontas, the, the Indian lady, Elizabeth Warren. Warren. Or, uh, what's that? Yeah, Warren. Yeah, or somebody like that. They'd love to see them elected. And, of course, if Biden doesn't make it to his 80th, then you'll get President Harris or President Warren or whatever. They want, to, And such people feel, you know, that's great. That'll bring things to a head. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole thing will pop open. Well, that sounds nice in theory, ladies and gentlemen. The problem is what it would really be like. If you've ever lived through civil unrest anywhere, whether in the United States or abroad, it's just not fun. And 
the innocent really and truly do suffer with the guilty. In fact, usually they suffer a lot more than the guilty do. Mm -hmm. um, even if our religion did not require it. Pure common sense. I know, I know, I'm sorry. I introduced that in the conversation. But pure common sense would suggest we try to tone things down wherever we can. We try somehow to turn down the heat. I know, blessed are the peacemakers. I forget who said that. It was some Palestinian. <laughs> uh, what? Some Palestinian Jew. I forget what his story was. But at any rate, um, blessed indeed are the peacemakers. Uh, because, ladies and gentlemen, and this is, I, I hate to sound all hippy-dippy, but our country's problems at the end of the day are not really political. The politics, rep the politics reflect the culture. Mm -hmm. The culture is a big problem. Mm -hmm. And yet, it's not simply the culture. The culture reflects the religion of the country. And that is our country's great dilemma. It is religious. It is not cultural. It is not political, except symptomatically. In a sense, we American Catholics are being punished for not evangelizing. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, another thing we lost sight of, and maybe if we hadn't, we would have been better at evangelizing, is that we are a minority. Uh, it's true, we're white, we're black, we're Chinese, we're Mexican, we're everything, we're the rainbow, not that rainbow, the other rainbow, in terms of uh, ethnic coloration. But the Catholic people, bound together by the sacraments, with much more in common with each other than their ethnic, non-Catholic compatriots. Um, we are a minority. Everything we stand for is is marginalized by the country in which we live. That wasn't always the case because it was a time when, due to the Constitution, we could freely evangelize, while at the same time, the majority of our moral stances were shared by most of our non-Catholic brethren in this country. We had a, a good time from 1789 to 1959 to evangelize. He didn't do it. All we wanted to do was be accepted. Get along to get along. Go, go along to get along and have one of our own in the White House. Mm -hmm. And the very day I was born, we got our wish. And much good did it do us. Oh, yeah. When we think of uh, the reign of Christ the King, can he be king with the Constitution we have right now? Let's put it this way. He can't be king with the people we have right now. The const constitutions and governments to a great degree reflect their subjects. Uh, are the American people as we are now worthy of anything better? See, that's the question you got to ask yourself. Years ago, there was a German conservative writer in the 1920s by the name of Müller Vandenbroek who was actually the man who coined the phrase, the Third Reich. He had no use for Hitler, and he wasn't a Nazi. 
but he talked about Germany's Third Reich. And Hitler thought that was a great thing, and he grabbed the the idea and the name. But the First Reich being the Holy Roman Empire, the Second Reich being Kaiser Wilhelm's Empire. Mm-hmm. So the idea was that there would be a Third Reich, which would encompass all the best qualities of the German people. That was Merle Vandenberg's idea. And as I say, Hitler kind of hijacked it. But in that book, Germany's Third Reich, Merle Vandenberg made a statement about the Germans, which frankly has haunted me ever since I read it back in uh, college. It was, the Germans cease to have kings when they cease to be a kingly people. Now, apply that to us. And whether it's the chicken and egg thing, we certainly have never had a generation of statesmen as able as the founding fathers. And ironically, they were the last one we produced under the monarchy. <laughs> I don't know if there's a causal connection, but it's an interesting factoid. <laughs> I, um, I don't know what is going to happen, but what I can say is that we have to try to evangelize. And we have to remember three things about evangelization. Number one, it's essential to the salvation of souls. Both those who are attempting to evangelize and our own. Point one. Mm-hmm. Point two, you cannot evangelize what you do not know. That's for sure. Yep. So I urge all would-be practicing Catholics to get to know wherever they are very, very well. Get to know your town's history. Get to know your parish history. Who are the pioneer Catholics? You know, join the Historical Society. Join the, the Friends of the Waterfall Society, the Garden Club. Do something to get involved in your local sphere and evangelize constantly. But, you see, you cannot evangelize what you do not know because you cannot love what you do not know. And your evangelization has to proceed out of love. Mm-hmm. Well, that's easier said than done sometimes. You know, evangelize my Mormon aunt. You know what a shrill old baggage she is. I can't stand the broad. I've heard of uh, Blue Army going to doors, some, not all of them, and getting in almost argument fistfights with the guys who opened the door. Yep, it can't be difficult. Um, and but by the same token, I mean, I remember Father Johnson, who was the priest at uh, Mary Star of the Sea, not Mary Star of the Sea, uh, yeah, St. Mary's by the Sea, it was called, in Huntington Beach, California which is a remarkable uh, beach town. It's got the statue of the unknown surfer. You know, those who go down to the sea in boards. Anyway, uh, but uh, he was basically given this parish, which was dying. And he was very conservative to the point of being able to say the Tridentine Mass. And the bishop of the place didn't care for him. So he figured, you know, he'd sick him in a dying parish and shut him up and get him out of the way. But he didn't reckon on the fact that Bishop Johnson was truly a bishop. Father Johnson was a very pastoral person. 
So he went door to door. So I'm the new pa I'm the new Catholic pastor at uh, St. Mary's by the Sea, and I'd like to invite you and your family to come to Mass. And some people yelled at him. Mm -hmm. A lot of people said, well, you know, I've been away from the church for a long time. Well, come to Mass, see what you think, and if you're up to it, you go to confession, and we'll take care of it. And so it went. And the end result is that it is today a flourishing parish, although he's dead these 10 years. Mm -hmm. I mention this because it can be done by people with the imagination, the love, and the tenacity to do so. Yeah, I remember uh, in Columbia, South, Blythewood, South Carolina, there was a parish priest, he wanted me to lead the youth group and I it was going to give me $30,000 to do it I, I eventually just told him to take the 30000 build an actual church that looked pretty it was it was an ugly church the liturgy was hideous it was one of those you know welcome your starting lineup for your Catholic mass here she's got curls she's cute she's you know and then here's your here's your priest that's been the same one for the last 15 years but we're going to give him in the starting lineup type deal you know everyone shake hands but he had this idea of he had a battle plan. He showed me his battle plan of everybody that lived in his in his that went to his parish, and he made everybody that uh, lived there go and fight all the people on their streets to mass and give them a free card to come for a fish fry on Friday. And here's Q and A on uh, ask ask Father anything on Tuesday, and he put a full page ad of apologetics in the free paper, color, very good stuff. So his evangelization ideas were awesome, but his, when he got to if they got to the church. That was kind of a, yeah, well, see, somehow the two have to be brought together. You gotta have both. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't just go to the other. No, and I, I, I have to say that uh, the, the better the liturgy and the better the preaching, that, that side is important too. But everything you're saying, people, we, we should all be doing. I mean, every parish should do it. Uh, this is why, you know, you've got these beautiful urban parishes that they love to close. Those should be used as centers of evangelization. And, and if there's a phrase that I hate in chancery offices around the English-speaking world, it's managed decline. I'd like to manage your decline, your elegance. You know, I'd like to manage you right out of here and get a real bishop. But, of course, that isn't dependent upon us. I would joke and call the evangelization office back in my last city the office of non-evangelization because they didn't do jack. <laughs> well, no, and why would they? Well, they were getting paid. That's something. So they did something. And before anybody gets mad at me about that, here's an example. We'd go down to the People's Fair in this city. I personally bought the tent to do it. I personally got the miraculous medals or donations from you guys to come in. Next to me was the Muslim tent with 30 or 40 people deep, two troughs of Korans they were giving away for free, kids handing out stuff, tracks, all this over, and I couldn't get anybody from the evangelization office to send me a Bible to give away. Why would they? Why would they? I don't understand. <laughs> See, if we've learned nothing about... It costs too the, much. It's not just that it costs too much. If we have learned anything about the views of a lot of churchmen today, mm -hmm. 
regarding the church. It's that it's utterly unnecessary. Non-essential. No. If you don't need those sacraments, you don't need the church. I, uh, you know, I, I once was having a conversation with a priest of that sort. And he was going on and on and on and on and on. And finally said, look, Father, I wish I could agree with you. I wish I could believe you, because then I would never have to have anything to do with the church again. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I can't. I have to believe you're lying, which means I'll still go to Mass. But I wish I could believe you, Father. Oh, God, you have no idea how I wish I could believe you. And you know, he didn't really seem to take that as a vote of confidence, which it was. I mean, I wanted to believe it. Isn't that something? Yeah. Anyway. So, it's all very problematic. We'll see what the uh, what the next little while brings. But in the meantime, think about evangelizing the best way you can. Uh, remember that, well, literally, as we say out off the menu, the soul you save may be your own, uh, which is something you can't do. You, you, you really mustn't forget. Uh, we were talk- we were talking off about the uh, before we started about the uh, how the church talks about minorities in general well which i'm sorry about minorities in general how we treated well, them throughout the history oh yeah i mean well see again when the church was interested in evangelization everybody outside the church was looked at as a potential catholic mm-hmm. as someone who needed what the church had to give which is the means of salvation or to put this another way, people who were dying of hunger and thirst in the desert and needed what the church had to offer. Mm-hmm. Now, because we no longer believe we have anything worth passing on, we don't bother. But let's not let that be us. Uh, for a lot of you, this may have been the longest time you ever went without the sacraments. And I know anecdotally, it drove a lot of people crazy. No confession, no communion is horrible. Well, now you know what your non-Protestant friends live like. They don't know it. But now you see what they are condemned to live in. Now, if you consider them friends and you saw they were starving or they were hungry, I am sure you would immediately give them food or drink or both. I mean the sun wouldn't set. You'd be, oh my God, sit down, Bob. Here, eat this, drink this. I mean, right now. If we felt that the sacraments were essential, we would be the same way. But we don't. Now, to be fair, it's not as though our hierarchy tell us that they are. Even those who believe it, and are, you know, more than you would think, are, shall we say, pressured not to, very often. But, we got to keep pushing. We can't let that get in our way. We can't wait, in this case, for those who should be pushing us. We can't wait for them to do the job, because they won't. And what it's going to take for them to wake up, I do not know. Massive loss of property, perhaps. I don't know. Every now and then, you know, when, when, people, when people lose money and property, it sometimes wakes them up over something. 
Sometimes, not always. You know, when, when, when you've got a, a company that's going bankrupt because they've been following a given policy, you would hope they would figure that out. But often enough, they don't. They say, oh, this is the way to do it. Well, look, we, we've been losing money since we started this thing. Uh, you know, I, we're going to go bankrupt. It's got to work. Well, that's the answer he gets. It's got to work. It's got to work. Something we've about had experts. Word. Humility? The, the focus group said it was a surefire deal. Are you going to say you know more than the focus group? Double down, baby. Well, I, I don't want to say I know more than the focus group, but money isn't coming out. Now, if the focus group is willing to indemnify us, then I'm with it. But if they're not, then we better do something that reverses the outflow. But, of course, that's only business. In the church, they're much wiser, and so they don't do things like that. But anyway, you can only be too excited and too upset. Uh, the statues continue to come down. They continue to get abused, daubed with their paint. They were going to pull down the statue of uh, Lord Baden-Powell, the founder of Boy Scouting in Blackpool, England. Fortunately, that was stopped. But, I mean, there's this orgy of iconoclasm. And it is, of all the stupid things to do with these marching morons, that's got to be the dumbest. It's there. It must be a dead white man like Queen Victoria no she was a dead white man wasn't she <laughs> so don't don't let that be you ladies and gentlemen don't part, go crazy part of me looks like it going get I go in my little rants for my wife here and I'll, and then after I get done I'm going but we deserve a big butt kicking for abortion gay marriage non no evangelization this divorce pornography the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. It goes back to what I said about being a kingly people. That ain't us. That ain't us. Yeah. So it could be that what we have is what we deserve. But how do you get out of that? Well, you try not being. What deserves that? You try improving. And sometimes, sometimes that, you know, you manage. See the problem, come up with a solution and execute. Yeah, but I, I I tell you, one of the things I've said this in the beginning of the assault on this on the Confederate statues and so on the, the battle flag. I could well imagine a time before I shuffle off this uh, mortal coil, in which I'll find myself having to defend the statues of civil rights leaders. You know, in Martin Luther King's tomb. I can well imagine that. And I'm I'm waiting for them to come after the churches. Well that'll that'll be in between. After they go after the churches, then the reaction will begin. And unfortunately, the reaction will probably be as stupid as most mass movements are. As unthinking as unrestrained and very often hitting the wrong targets I mean I, I remember in the wake of 9-11 in LA we had four Middle Easterners killed mm -hmm. one was a Sikh 
One was a Coptic Christian. One was an Iraqi Christian. One was an Armenian. Not a single one of them were Muslim. Mm-hmm. But they were ragheads, man. Yeah. I mean, that's the problem with mobs. They're stupid. And it doesn't matter what their, their presumed ideology is. It doesn't keep them from being stupid. It just doesn't. Because, you see, in a mob, our human nature, our fallen human nature, is able to come to the top and overwhelm whatever progress we made in being real individual human beings. And then we revert to the animal, to the, to the wolf pack. You see this on the school ground all the time. You know, perfectly nice kids, you get them together as a group, and they do terrible things. Then the only thing you can do is beat them to a pulp and listen to them cry. But no, what a terrible thing to say. I am shocked. But no, it is true, though, that you do have to reduce them back to individuals before they can you can deal with them. One of the classic ways, if, if one finds oneself uh, confronted by five or ten people who have harmful intent, and you happen to have a weapon, is to say, all right, no, ten of you, there's one of me, I'm going to get it. You're, you're going to overwhelm me. But one of you is dying. Which one? I'll kill him now, and then the rest of you can have at it. Who is it? Oh, just fun with you, man. Just fun. And off they go. <laughs> it's kind of like the idea of uh, playing crazy. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, I mean, that was something my dad taught me, you know, because due to his, shall we say, financial instability, I went to a, a number of different schools. Catholic, public, Catholic, public, Catholic, public, Catholic, public. Whenever you went to a new school, until the last of them, which was gang-ridden, so that was a whole different dimension. But all the others, you had to fight with the, the bully. Uh, the way my dad taught me to fight bullies is very simple. Ignore the punches, forget the pain, get your hands around his throat, hmm. and strangle him. And then let his friends pull you off him. Go back there. And they will. They're not going to let you strangle him. But they'll think you're crazy, and they will leave you alone. Mm-hmm. You'll be more trouble than you're worth. Work like a child. Yeah. That's why uh, sharks don't go after things that can hurt them. That's it. And if you, uh, you know, I, I, I was always amazed at how quickly said bully would suddenly become a friend. And you pretended, at least I did. Perhaps other people would have been, you know, more forthright and honest. How dare you, sir? You're simply, uh, you're simply calling me a friend because that takes away the hurt and the shame of having been defeated by me. Yeah, well, I wasn't Dudley Do Right. <laughs> Charlie, before we wind up, tell the people some simple solutions to one, stay joyful, or maybe be able to help change your locality as we talked about last time yeah well once again i mean your locale it's it's remember ladies and gentlemen first and foremost wherever you are right now in the whole world watching this you are there because of a concatenation of circumstances through which god put you there you know a certain number of people you know the people in your family presumably you know the people you work with. 
depending on your non-work outside the home interests, whether we're talking about hobbies, etc., you know, people of that sort. Uh, if you get involved with anything from, again, historical preservation, nature conservation, uh, local theater or arts or whatever, uh, shopping locally, slow food, farmer's markets, whatever it is you get into, uh, you will meet people you can evangelize. One thing I would suggest you consider doing, especially if you've got a parish that has its head screwed on tight, and if you've got an historic turn of mind, is you explore who the pioneer Catholics of your place were. You have requiem masses set for them and invite all the history mavens. So, for instance, you, uh, you know, you're in the uh, uh, Squatchuck, Indiana uh, town. Uh, there's no such place as Squatchuck. I made it up. So don't go looking. But uh, it's it the turns new name out, of the next annex city. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it, Squatchuck. But uh, you know, you do you, you you joined the Squatchuck County Historical Association, which, of course, in addition to maintaining records and uh, uh, a small museum of local stuff in the Judge uh, Arthur Hutter Mansion, which his great great granddaughter willed the Historical Society back in 1953. And they've maintained it ever since. Well, you find out that Father Gundry was the pioneer Catholic priest in the region. And he's a name of some interest to your fellow local historian buffs. So what do you do? You have your pastor offer a requiem mass for Father Gundry. And you invite everybody in the historical society and their various friends and relations to come and see it. To come and be there. Now, this seems like a small thing, except it's not. It will get them thinking about why Father Gundry came to Squatchuck in the first place. Why, how he set up the first mass when there were still Indians in the area. Mm -hmm. uh, how uh, how when the, the current church was built back in 1921, uh, Judge, Hutter's, uh, Judge Hutter, although he was Presbyterian, donated... $7,500 to the building of the church because his, his uh, maids and uh, uh, drivers and all that were all Irish. So he wanted them to have a place to go to church. Now, I'm making this stuff out of, out of my head, but this is actually the way these things have worked. You see? Mm -hmm. So explore this stuff and make it known. Because, you know, not only is it useful for evangelization, it's worthwhile in itself. Yeah. The pioneer Catholics who came before you in your area need to be remembered. Gives you a sense of pride, too. Yeah. Yeah. Squatchuck is not just some dump that's with a corrupt, with a falling apart downtown because all the business went out to the mall 25 years ago. Well, 30, but who's counting? And that's the sort of thing. You know, you live in such a town and you've got a falling apart downtown with these beautiful buildings. Mm -hmm. Look in to the downtown revival programs. You could have those things filled with boutique tea shops. And, uh, My wife talks about it. She's a fan of this. There's a TV show on uh, Home and Gardens or something like that called uh, Hometown. There's this couple that in Laurel, yeah. Mississippi, whose aim is to restore their town. 
and ah! redo, re- make the homes nice, beautiful again, bring people in, sell the homes, dirt cheap. I mean, too bad it's not a Catholic area, but there's another way. Turn it Catholic. Well, see, that's the thing exactly. It, it requires a deep devotion both to evangelization, to the faith, and to your town or your neighborhood if you're in a big city. Because, you know, the same is true, too. They've got what they call the new urbanism. And if you happen to live in a place, you know, in, a, in an urban neighborhood, same, same. You know? It was, number one, it wasn't always urban. It had a history of some kind. Uh, and number two, look around and see what's there now. I mean, if you've got ethnic, especially Catholic ethnic restaurants, mm-hmm. those are all things you could use. You know, uh, if you've got uh, a, a Polish restaurant in your neighborhood or Italian or whatever, sounds to me like there's got to be a Saints, uh, a Polish or Italian Saints festival coming up. Go to a Mexican restaurant, you almost always see Ale Guadalupe behind the desk. Always. So use this stuff, ladies and gentlemen. It requires imagination and determination. But I promise you the results will be amazing. And you will be an apostle of peace in this time of not just dissension, but stupid dissension, crazy dissension. You know, I, I wouldn't mind it so much if what was being fought over were real issues. And and I'm not saying that ripping the statues down isn't a real issue, but it's it's symptomatic. The, um, you know, I, I all this stuff about systemic racism, it is true, ladies and gentlemen. We are afflicted by systemic racism, but it's not entirely what they're thinking of. What they're thinking of is the sort of battle flag waving, Ku Klux, Ku Klux Klanish, Dixie singing, racism song and story. And there's some of that left, no doubt about it. But that's not. That's not the racism that really is undermining the black and other minority minority groups in this country. It's the racism that doesn't think they're capable of being grown up. It's the racism that infantilizes them. It's the racism that doesn't demand of all races the same standard of behavior. It's the racism that favors the entrance of minorities uh, who are not well equipped to do so in the major universities then flunks them out because they're, they don't have the academic equipment to persevere and leaves them embittered. I hope you're listening, Harvard and Yale. That's a terrible thing to do to people, and they do it regularly. Um, it is a miserable, miserable thing People forget, and we'll take the blacks as an example. Under Jim Crow, the blacks build up uh, build up an extraordinary network of institutions in this country, or in that country, I should say, in Southern Austria. They build up an extraordinary network of educational institutions, and in, in the case of Catholics, a network of Catholic parishes across the country, mm-hmm. and institutions like the Knights of Peter Claver, of which I am a very proud member. Um, and all of that, not simply without a great deal of white help, but very often in the teeth of very difficult opposition. Mm-hmm. That's a chapter of their history that they should be proud of and that America should be proud of. Mm-hmm. 
I didn't get the chance yet because I was here to see the film The Green Book, but I sure know the story behind it. Are you familiar with it? No, I haven't read it. Well, basically, The Green Book, and it's typical of what I'm saying, uh, when the automobile came in, mm-hmm. blacks had been restricted, thanks to Plessy versus Ferguson, to uh, in the South, to uh, uh, segregated railroad cars, mm-hmm. which were you know kind of shoddy usually. Separate but equal wouldn't be so bad if separate had had been equal. But believe me, it really wasn't. However, uh, when the car came along, the automobile came along, and those blacks who could afford it could travel. Well, this was great because now you had a means of travel where you weren't subjected to sitting in the back mm-hmm. in rundown conditions. But now there was another problem because there were many places where you simply couldn't go, the so called sundown towns. All across the country. Let's say you want to drive to California, you're black. You can't stay in a sundown town, but how are you going to know what's a sundown town? A lot of hotels, a lot of restaurants won't serve blacks, and not just in the South. Mm-hmm. So, how are you going to get through California to California with a minimum of annoyance? How are you going to do that? Well, there were a lot of travel books the Blue Book, the Red Book, etc. There was a gentleman, Mr. Green, who invented the Green Book. He was a black guy. And the Green Book was a guide to black-owned or black-friendly businesses, gas stations, restaurants, hotels, all the way across the country. And for decades, black families who had the means to travel in their own automobiles used the Green Book to go anywhere. Now, you're probably wondering, how did he get his information? Good question. And this this shows precisely the kind of ingenuity I'm talking about. If we could use this ingenuity for evangelization, we'd have something. Mm-hmm. What he did, he was he was a postman. He worked for the post office. The post office has always been one of the few branches of government that was always integrated. So he literally had postman informants across the country. He used his day job to, do it. to build up his references. And once it got, that was how he got it launched. And then once it was going, of course, he had all kinds of people. You know, if you, if you drove across country using the Green Book, you'd report your experiences. People would tell you about, you know. So this, this was a great thing. And truly, uh, for want of a better word, an American success story. It made Green rich, and rightfully so. Uh, and this is the kind of tale all of those stories have been completely forgotten. There's an app. I'm looking at my phone because a friend of mine told me about it. It's called Travel Something, kind of like what you were talking about, that they put together so that when you're driving across the Union, you'd know what significant sto- uh, places are in every city. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, imagine if we had a Catholic book like that. Yeah. Now... Uh, and that, that is something, too, we really need to be thinking as pan-Catholics, as it were. Because even more than our ethnicity, even more than being American, Catholic is our identity. We have to learn to think that way. Mm-hmm. Because we don't. In other words, at the same time that we have to severely localize our sensibility, 
we've got to universalize our identity. Yep. Leo was a Leo. Catholics know your dignity. No, it was a. Yeah, it was Leo the Great. Catholics know your dignity. Yep. And mind you, not simply because we're so wonderful, but as a means of bringing up everything, mm-hmm. of making these United States the country God intended them to be. Now, before I forget, there's something else you should bear in mind, speaking of Catholic American identity. Let's not forget that the patroness of the United States is Our Lady of the Immaculate Conception. Mm-hmm. Her feast day, December the 8th, should be for American Catholics what St. Patrick's Day is for the Irish, what St. Jean-Baptiste Day is for the uh, French Canadians, what St. Anthony is for the Italians, what St. George is for the uh, English, and so on. Mm-hmm. We should celebrate that the way we, the way we celebrate the 4th of July. Uh, make a big deal out of it, and that's the day to wave the flag. I'll tell you. The uh, oh, which reminds me, before I forget completely, now our audience will already be past this, but and and, and mind you, this is something I probably would didn't do last year, but I'm going to do it this year because of all the drivel that's going on. Tomorrow, Sunday, March 14th. Oh, sorry, Monday. Yeah, March. Tomorrow, Sunday, June 14th is Flag Day. Now, I got to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, when I go to Mass tomorrow morning in uh, in Vienna, I am not going to be wearing the Gebetsliga pin I usually wear. I am going to be wearing the Stars and Stripes. Not just because it's Flag Day but in protest against the division and disunity and insanity that it has taken hold of my country. Um, I'm not going to lie and say I wish I was there. I don't. I would not have wanted to have seen Fairfax Avenue in flames. No, no. But I would be lying if I said that I don't really... Well, let's put it this way. I love Europe very much. I love Central Europe, Austria-Hungary very, very much. I love France very much, of course. But being over here, in addition to raising the level of my love for the old the old motherland from whence we all come, it certainly has raised my love of uh, the United States. Uh, you know, you never love something quite so much as when you're not there. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it is the world in miniature every people on the face of the planet are represented in our country and that's one of the things I love about it it's one of the things I hate about this current drivel that's going on the ripping apart of things I hate that not simply again it's not about it's not just about confederate statues being pulled down or Columbus being it's all of it I, and as I say, I would I would feel the same way if they were ripping down uh, Martin Luther King statues. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's not that I'm the greatest fan of Martin Luther King, but I know that he's very much a hero to some people. And one thing you learn if you're at all sane and you've got a very diverse population is you let people venerate their heroes. You know, 
one of the things that I find very disturbing amongst uh, conservative Catholic whites is they're jumping up and down uh, now about the Confederacy being uh, being traitors. Um, that's a very new thing, and I don't know where it's come from. Uh, what I can tell you is that the sons of Union veterans of the Civil War have backed up the sons of Confederate veterans mm -hmm. in the defense of the symbols of their um, of their ancestors. And, you know, they have more of a dog in that fight than anybody else. I mean, save the people that actually fought it themselves. Mm -hmm. And we know what they did at Gettysburg, you know, the whole old guys running down into the old guys' arms. We know what they did. Um, if, you're, if you're not really part of that fight, you know, your ancestors came over after the Civil War and all, and you're thinking, you know, you're, you're taking a strong stance. Don't do that. You're not in a position to. The fact of the matter is, is that that was a hatchet that had been effectively buried. And digging it up again is an insanity for which I hope we're, we're all not going to pay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I think a lot about these things. I mean, if I had been around in 1860, I suppose I would have been a constitutional unionist, you know. Keep the union if we can, but we're not going to fight over it. That... Uh, and given what the Civil War ended in being, the amount of death, the wonderful young men on all sides who were butchered, mm -hmm. uh, obviously one never knows, as, as our friends here in Europe can tell you about World War One. one never knows what it is you're calling up when you let loose war. Yeah, let's open, don't open that box. Yeah, you'll find out later. But... You don't go to war unless it's something really pressing. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I was not I was not in the National Guard all that long and I certainly never saw combat. But all the all the older guardsmen had, they were all Vietnam vets. And of course my dad was uh, World War Two, my father my grandfather in World War One. Mm -hmm. And they all said the same thing. There was no pacifist like a soldier. Um, so what's true of external war is also true of internal conflict don't be so quick ladies and gentlemen to want to break heads and smash windows because you do that you do that you will pay and not just you so last thing I'll say ladies and gentlemen is let's pray very hard now that we uh, most of us can get to mass again, do it. Say your rosary. All that fighting and complaining we've been doing better be knocking those doors down. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, and for heaven's sake, don't go crazy. Stay sane inside insanity, as the Rocky Horror Picture Show tells us. <laughs> Please, you know I. What's that? No, no, no. Go ahead. You know, I was just going to say last last point, but. The uh, that is one of the two things in that movie that I enjoy quoting. It's not a movie I would recommend, frankly, but there it's actually rather witty in a lot of ways. And the other the other thing I like very much is the uh, well, if you go 
go to see it, there's like this call and response ritual because the audience have pre program things that yell back at the characters on the film. Dang. And this is sort of ritualized. So there's one point where the heroine goes, oh, if only our car hadn't broken down. And the audience roars back, but it did. <laughs> then she says, if only we were among nice people. And they roar back, but you're not. <laughs> I feel like that a lot these days, you know. <laughs> if only they weren't ripping down statues, but they are. If only people weren't going insane, but they do. <laughs> if only chance didn't exist, but it does. It does. <laughs> well, Chaz, all right, to be fair, although I like to make a lot of fun about Chaz being a Confederate uh, renewal thing, uh, and there are some secessionists in its ranks. All right, I, I don't know where they're trying to secede to. Planet Mars, perhaps. It looks like a weird combo of uh, Burning Man, Woodstock, uh, uh, <laughs> Holiday on Ice. <laughs> it, I, I mean, idiocracy come live. Oh yeah, uh, heavy heavy strain there. And, you know, you wonder how long, obviously they would like to precipitate some kind of action. But I tell you what, I don't know how long it will, it will just last on its own. Do you remember the Occupy movement? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Occupy LA occupied City Hall Park, which is the area around City Hall. And I mean, a, a better bunch of jackals to get this kind of garbage on their front door than the LA City Council, I can't imagine. It was really good. Well, you have these guys, literally with their tents and all that, all around City Hall, killed the grass, you know, because they were defecating, you know, I mean, it was horrible. You could smell the City Hall, you know, four, a quarter of a mile away. But then the Occupy people started to complain that the homeless were moving in with them. And then, and then they, were, they were catching drinks and trying to pick up on Occupy checks. <laughs> and, and, you know, I can't make this. You guys up. are really no. Said so you guys are really stupid. You got free food, free booze, free chicks. What do you think's gonna happen? How stupid are you? And the answer is really stupid. Rhetorical. <laughs> case you were wondering, well, let's show you. So finally, and of course, the city council. Part of the the problem for the leadership in these cities is that they're made up of boomers, mm -hmm. the generation of 68. So they people see people doing this, and they feel, you know, I, I feel alive again. It's like my youth. Because, you know, most of them really were not on the barricades, but they would have been if they hadn't been, you know, wusses. So this is really exciting for back. them. And they can't, yeah, and they can't, they can't really react to it the way a grown-up would. Because, you know, my generation, we're elderly children. Mm -hmm. we, we, I mean, our bodies have aged, yeah, yeah. but we never matured. You know, it's like a tree that goes to, it goes to seed without ever having had any fruit. That's, that's what my generation will like, pretty much. I mean, there are exceptions, but pretty much that's who we are. Uh, you know, we still listen to the old music and all that. <laughs> I tell you, they... Yeah. Tell me over and over again you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. Yes, I am so bloody lootly. The problem is all of our songs take out a poignancy now that were not intended by the original singers. I mean, the times they are a-changing. 
I listened to that thing, and I said, oh, yeah, boy, but not the way you're thinking. <laughs> so I mentioned all this simply because look what happened to Occupy. Uh-huh. In the end, it fell victim to its own nonsense. Uh-huh. Uh, it was unable to be resisted by the same people who can't resist all of this drivel now for the same reason. Uh-huh. But it was so silly, it fell to bits. Now, what will happen now is a little different because Occupy didn't have the kind of money behind it that a lot of these guys do. Yeah. Now, where that money comes from, of course, a lot of people suspect George Soros. Um, I don't know. I have no idea. But what I will say is that I hope it can be just made to fall to pieces all on its own. Probably over the weekend. With any luck. Uh, and not just there, but all over this great country of ours. The last thing we need is a long, hot summer. The last thing we need is rednecks getting sick of it all. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really don't need that. But if this thing doesn't end, that's what you get. And then we'll see a terrible swift sword. But till then, people, is Charles Cologne with Tumblr House. Get his book, Puritan Empire. No pun intended on the Puritan part right now with the ecclesiastical. Yeah. It's it's what we you know, I'll just say my my book Star Spangled Crown describes a collapse of the United States initially before yeah. it and I have had people calling me how did you know this was going to happen well it it it's not exactly that I knew this was going to happen it just <laughs> it wasn't a blueprint <laughs> no 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 it was partly a warning partly a, a, partly a, a, an incitement to think about uh-huh. stuff. It was not a blueprint. Certainly not the first part was not a blueprint. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just saw the sensor come in. Yes. So we better, uh, when, when the sensor comes in, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> you know, we like the Smothers Brothers, and they're going to pull the plug. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Uh, check out Tumblr House is uh, in the, off the menu on Mondays. And, Charles, uh, we'll talk to you next time. Righto. God bless you, man. Take care. Bye-bye, bye bye